government. All right, let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, we do pray that you would uh, continue to pour into our hearts and our minds that which is good and right and pure. We pray that you would increase our faith, increase our understanding, and help us to know, Father, the, the, the height, width, length, depth of the love you have for us. And help us, Father, to bring this good message throughout, throughout the land. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, I want to also um, make it easier for you to follow where I'm going. So, um, where I'm at right now, if you have that outline in front of you in the, in the, uh, in the notebook, is uh, understanding common ground. I just finished uh, becoming acquainted with popular Christianity, and I just gave a couple of quick words on that. What I want to talk about now is understanding the common ground. <clears throat> no... Um, with you know, who you're talking with. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.14 writes, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. I think we have to recognize, you know, when you're talking to somebody, if they don't acknowledge the Scriptures, it's a really a different conversation than if, it's, uh, if you're talking to your evangelical friends, which is really our theme this week, bringing it to our evangelical friends. And uh, if people don't acknowledge the authority of the Word of God, then uh, you've got a different conversation and it's really a, different, uh, really a different topic. I think one of the great hopes that we have, though, is that most modern evangelicals still acknowledge the authority of the Bible. So we have that. You know, there are rules of engagement with our with our Christian friends. Later on, I'm going to um, demonstrate how I think there is, even though there is a professing sola scriptura among evangelicals, I think there is a uh, de facto lack of sola scriptura among evangelicals, but I'm going to deal with that a little bit later in in the talk. Um, The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica wrote this. He says, For this we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. It's this idea that when somebody, uh, you know, it's the uh, first question we have of our members, right? Do you believe that the scriptures contained in the Old and New Testament are the word of God? If you don't have a yes to that, at least the way I understand things, you really don't have a biblical Christian, which obviously can then be telescoped or uh, protracted to, you don't, or succincted to, you don't have a Christian, if you don't have a biblical Christian. So there needs to be, at first in the discussion, are we acknowledging that the Bible is in fact the Word of God? And I think that's an important place to go. And again, later in uh, the discussion, uh, I will talk about how many evangelicals really don't work that way, even though they'll say it. It's really not working that way. And um, what I'd like to do now is go to uh, the value of history if, in your outline. I think it's on the bottom of page uh, one of the outline. would have been last night, but I pushed it out. And I think this is a big step for me in my uh, growth as a, as a believer. 
was to recognize the value of the history of the Christian faith. I think there is uh, just a disdain for that. Again, talking about, you know, when you bring up historical things, uh, people aren't interested in that. But I know for me, most major transformations I have made were the result of a good book written by one of the giants of Christian history. And it was a major epiphany for me, because everybody recognizes uh, what we read in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, that God has determined that his word be taught. To, you know, all the way back into the Old Testament, teach this to your children. So the Bible is, a, is an instrument that is designed to be taught to other people. And I think most Christians, you know, would recognize that, that there is this thing called a teacher that God has ordained to bring clarity to the message. But it was a real epiphany for me when I realized that the value of the teacher was not merely for the students who happened to be alive at the same time. When I, are there funny noises going on here? Or is, or is that me? Is it just, it's, I'm... I'm going, and there's because the other day I heard some ringing in my ears, and I thought, isn't that a funny? Th-? And then it went away, and does that just happen? You know, you start hearing stuff. <laughs> Maybe it's my fillings. That was a big that was a big thing for me to recognize that I know that the Bible says I'm to be taught, but you know what? I can be taught by teachers who are no longer living. I can be taught by the divines of Westminster. I can be taught by the Luthers and the Calvins of history. I mean, God has raised these teachers up to also instruct me, instruct not just the guys who happen to be alive now. And I should take advantage of the history of the church in terms of the things that I can know. That was a, that was, especially when you consider most people will recognize that during the, Refor- the Reformation was a period of richer theological period, it was a richer theological period than what we have today in, uh, you know, the, the waning theology of 21st century American Western culture. Two years ago when I went to China to speak uh, to, to the underground church, uh, I found out after I got there, they didn't really want me to come. They didn't want me to come because they're the underground church. They're the ones who are really, you know, facing the music, as it were. And their mentality was, why would we want somebody from the sold-out church in America to come talk to us? Their, their thinking is that we've just sold out here. And uh, so there, I think there's a value of recognizing that um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a history and a richness that we can uh, tap into in terms of the instruction of the history of the church. You don't, you know, you don't, you don't and I'll get, a, I'll get into this a little bit later, but you don't, it's interesting how people just have their Bibles in their hands. And of course, the Bible is the Word of God, and I'm not in any way demeaning that. But we act as if... Um, that anything else to help us learn is wrong. I mean, we, I had this guy, I knew this guy leading a Bible study, and he wouldn't allow other books. And somebody would quote another book, Wayne. As a matter of fact, Wayne, that's the name I was trying to think of. Who was pre- Wayne? Um, he's a pastor up in Berkeley. Fortner. Fortner, yeah. Wayne was going to that Bible study. And Wayne's like, yeah, you know, he's, he's got this book. And, he's, and the guy's like, we don't allow other books. 
And it's like, well, you, you seem to be allowing yourself to say stuff. If, it, you know, if it's just Bible alone, let's just read it, and, you know, and quit giving me us, your opinions, you know. But we recognize that there is a value to, uh, to those types of things. Um, I think one of the things we have to recognize is that we have to help our evangelical friends understand the influences in their lives. Because I think they really think, people really think that they're only influenced by the Bible. There is that mentality. People think that since the Bible's been opened and read, that it's been properly exegeted. I don't know, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. But, you know, I've been involved in Christian radio off and on for years, so I, I listen. It's hard to listen to Christian radio. It's tough. You know, it's frustrating. I don't know if you're... But I'll hear a passage read, and then he starts, he's just off to the races. And I'm like, that, what you're saying has nothing to do with the passage you just read. But everybody in the church thinks they were just taught the Bible. That's a very common phenomenon. I, I think I've, I, I actually tested that one time. I uh, was leading a Bible study, and I read a passage, and then I just launched into how Billy Graham believed that there, were life, there was life on other planets and that maybe they didn't fall from grace. And I just went off. I was just making stuff up. And people were like, you know, they thought they were like Bible study. They were like at Pastor Paul Fantasyland. <laughs> and I go, I stop, I go, how does that verse have anything to do with what I've been talking about for the last ten minutes? And they're like, Oh, you know, they'd been had. I wanted them to learn to be better learners. You know, come on, let's go, let's get on board. You know, look at the passage and see if what's being taught really is what the passage is actually saying. I think we have to recognize that there there are the new councils. You know, in the past, right, in our denomination, you know, we've got a council. If, I'm, if I teach a miss, you know, people in our church can go to, they'll come to me, they'll go to, the el- to our elders, and they can go to the presbytery, and they can go to the general assembly, and it'll be evaluated. It'll be scrutinized if what I'm saying to those people is biblical. You know, it goes to the council, if you will. You know, like the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. There were councils to determine whether or not the music that Bach wrote should actually be sung in church, right? Now, you know, Amy Grant, or Twyla Paris writes a song on Tuesday, sings it on Friday, and they're singing it in church on Sunday. There's just really no evaluation. But we have new councils. There, there are the new authorities. You know what they are? They're the publishers, for one. If it's, a, if it's in print, if it's in the Christian bookstore, it must be true. I can't tell you, if I don't know how long ago it was, probably about eight years ago, I had a station manager ask me if I wanted to do a radio show. So I said, sure, I'll do the radio show, you know. I'm willing to try things. So I'm doing talk radio. It's amazing how much credibility I immediately had. All of a sudden, it's like somebody gave me a degree. <laughs> the station manager gave me a degree. So I might as well have had a doctorate. Now, all of a sudden, I'm this voice of authority simply because I'm on the radio. We have the publishers. The marketers, the church growth marketers are the authority. The charismatic personality or the high-profile personality has become the authority. When I say charismatic, I'm not talking in a theological sense. I'm talking in the person who can fill the stadium. 
becomes the authority. I occasionally get, you know, phone calls uh, or letters, you know, and people want me to buy their curriculum for our church. It's all, for, almost always from Texas, right? They always say, I'm calling from Texas, and we have, make your church great curriculum, and would you like to buy it? And so, you know, I, I try to be nice. I'm like, so what, what is it? What do you, you know? Well, you know, it's just 11 steps on how to bring your church, you know, from 300 to 15,000 people, you know, and all this stuff. And so I'm listening to this, and I go, I, so I ask this one guy, I go, so what, what do you guys believe? Well, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. You know, he goes down a real short statement of faith. People still have the statement of faith, you know. I go, well, yeah, but, you know, we're kind of persnickety about what we present to our congregation. Do you, can you give me more detail, you know? I mean, do you have a confessional statement of some sort or something? We're in history. You know, I'm trying to get a little bit more out of him. This guy was a retired pastor, and his response was, well, pastor, Maybe it'll ease you a little bit, ease your conscience a little bit to know that our program is endorsed by one Chuck Swindoll. <laughs> like, the Council of Chuck. <laughs> and I go, so it's dispensational? Is it dispensational? He goes like, well, you know, I don't know what it is. Well, you know, so it's the personality. It's a personality-driven thing rather than a counsel-driven thing. And I think we have to recognize that even though people think they're being taught through the Bible, they're really, they're really being taught by what that person thinks the Bible says. And I'm going to get to this later too, um, but by just dawning me that it might be a good example. Everybody in modern Western evangelicalism thinks that the sinner's prayer is biblical. You know, you know the sinner's prayer, right? You know, it's in the four spiritual laws. I prayed it. Anybody else prayed the sinner's prayer here? You know, no, look at, see all the OPC people. No, we didn't do it. We, we were not subject to that folly. But I remember thinking, this is just, it's biblical. I mean, everybody thinks it's biblical. I had a guy walk into my office one time and just nicely said, where in the Bible is that? And since it's such the focus, right? I mean, it's the focus of every crusade, that's it. I mean, that's where you go with that. And I'm like, well, the Bible says sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, and how can he get in your heart unless you ask him to go in there? You know, I, I'm, I'm making stuff up, trying to figure out how that works. And, of course, it's the Revelation 3.20 passage, right, that they use, behold, they stand at the door and knock. But aren't these people ostensibly people who would already would have asked Jesus into their heart, right? They're the church. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that I had believed for years and years that it was biblical. It wasn't like I wanted to believe a lie or something that was false. But people believe things are biblical because people stand up, open the Bible, read the Bible, and then draw faulty conclusions based upon, you know, whatever the culture seems to demand or where it's gone, you know, with Finney and the sawdust road and all that kind of stuff. I think we need to be aware of that. I think do we need to be aware of the fact that people are really um, led not by the scriptures but by the, the, uh, the instructors more, quite frankly. I mean, you think about, I don't know, how many of you are really familiar with dispensationalism? I keep mentioning it, you know, and I know sometimes when I mention it, things like that, people don't know what I'm talking about. But I remember, you know, as I wrestled through that, and, you know, their argument is that it's um, the clear interpretation of Scripture. Uh, that's the big argument is, you know, it's the clear, literal interpretation of Scripture. And I remember, I look at that model of dispensationalism, and I think to myself, if I read the Bible, 
by myself, for a hundred years, I would never come up with that system. And interestingly enough, Christians read the Bible for 1,800 years and never came up with that system. And yet everybody thinks it's just perspicuously biblical. And I think, uh, you know, a good healthy dose of being willing to be, you know, develop critical thinking, not to be overly critical, but to help them to be critical thinkers and to recognize the power that the teachers have, the power that the publishers have, the power that the radio personalities and television, they just have an amazing power over the way we think about what the Christian faith is. All right, I'm moving on now to uh, the necessity of increments. Is that on page, is that on the Monday night's page too? No, it's on the next page. All right, see how we're progressing? The necessity of increments. I, um, have you ever Googled your own name? How many people have Googled their own name? Okay. Bunch of egomaniacs. <laughs> Do I count? Do I count? Am I significant? <laughs> I had my wife Google my name because I didn't know. <laughs> so I Googled my name. And uh, the very first thing that came up was a silly comment I made at Presbytery. I'm like going, oh, is this got to be the, f- oh, I'm like, I'm like, Pastor Paul, and the heading was, you know, OPC Presbytery, and it was, it was uh, probably the second Presbytery that I had gone to, and I'm like, I'm up going, okay, hey, so what's the deal, you know, and I'm out of order and talking, and Jim was the, <laughs> Jim was the uh, moderator, and he's being as nice as he can, and just kind of going, okay, you know, I'm getting a lot of what are you thinking looks from everybody, and I just did, I, I'm still trying to figure out, you know, the whole process and the whole parliamentary thing, I'm still, you know, trying to figure out how to not, you know, make a fool out of myself, but I think that we need to understand our own beliefs have begun to develop and that they developed to a certain place. They're still developing. And I think we need to foster an attitude of encouragement and patience with others. I mean, everybody was really nice to me when I spoke and I was out of order. You know, Jim was real nice to my out of orderliness. It wasn't like he was like, what are you, you know, maybe there was some what are you thinking going on in the minds, but it wasn't like I was chastised. It was more like, all right, he's new. We're going to live with, you know, we'll live with him for a while. You know, and as time goes on, I'm sure he'll figure it out. And I think we have to recognize that we've come to a certain place and we have to recognize that uh, God is bringing people to a certain place and we need to be patient and we need to recognize what I call incrementalism. And I don't know if I've made that up or incrementalism, if you put it on your computer, the little red line is going to come underneath it. It's not a real word. So maybe I did make it up. Maybe I should get credit for that. But I think we have to recognize there's a thing called uh, that I call theological incrementalism. We see it, you know, in a certain sense throughout the scripture. Uh, Jesus increased. He increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and men. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3.2, Paul says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food until now you were not able to receive it. Uh, Jesus in John 16:12 says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So we have this idea, you know, where there's a, there's a recognition that, you know, we've got to take this in, you know, baby steps, right? Movie reference, baby steps. <laughs> that, thank you. What about, everybody's like, oh, we don't go to the movies. What a baby. We gotta, you know, we've got to understand the baby steps that people, that people are taking. 
Growth, by the way, in increments is not merely advisory. It's not just good I, a good idea. It's necessary. You simply cannot know the things you don't know until you know them. Right? You, you have to. If you already know it, then you know it. So the thing that you don't know, you don't know yet. It's, a, it's what they call a, a tautology. It's just self-evident. It's an axiom. So we have to recognize that growth is in increments. I learn slowly, and we have to recognize that not only in ourselves, but we have to be kind of be willing to understand that in others. So if it, took, it took me, like I said before, about a year, year and a half, to kind of embrace the doctrines of grace. All right? So I should be respectful enough to give somebody else their time to figure it all out and understand that people need to work things out. People are mentally, intellectually wired differently. And sometimes people have to work through a lot of stuff before they get it. So we have the necessity of increments. And we also have to understand that, uh, you know, we have many, quite frankly, as I mentioned earlier, unqualified pastors. And, uh, you know, and, and in a certain sense, again, I think we're all unqualified. I think we have to, you know, you understand what I'm talking about here. I mean, we recognize that It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. I think, I don't know. I mean, I take take what I'm saying quite seriously. Uh, But but I sometimes don't take myself all that seriously. I mean, I, I try to keep my view of myself at an appropriate level. And sometimes I think it's just when I'm preaching or talking and I start telling you what God says, I just think it's, you know, and I don't mean irreverent, I just think sometimes it's the most ridiculous thing in the world that I'm saying this. It'd be like me having training cockroaches to represent me. You know, I mean, and now don't get me wrong, I, I understand the value of man and that man is made in the image. I understand that. But, but we as pastors, as people, and as people just talking to each other about God, are talking about something that's just so amazingly incomprehensible. And yet God is determined that that's the way it ought to be. But let us not get too big for our britches when we find that we're speaking about those things and we're representing God. I mean, I think it's interesting, the, this idea of the foolishness of the, of the message preached. We've got to recognize that we're all... Remember that little sticker that came out? It was a PB, P, blah, 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 W, W, J, B, whatever it was. Excuse me. Um, it was, please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. I remember that came out. That was kind of cool. You know, it's like we've got to recognize that we're all a work in progress. I am and whoever I'm talking to is. And there's got to be a certain amount of patience that we have when we're talking to those. And uh, again, I've, I've witnessed pastors who've just decimated their churches because they don't operate that way. What, they, what it took them 20 years to figure out, they demanded that their congregation just embraced in a, in a month or a couple of months. And I think we have to recognize that in the same thing, the way we train our children. You know, we train them things they can grasp, and then we move on to the next step. That's the way it I mean, again, this might be helpful for you if you were raised in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and you've always had pretty sound doctrine and you've always thought pretty clearly. But some of us weren't raised that way and it, it takes a, it's, a, it's a long, hard process to sweep out all that old stuff. You know, you know, talk about dispensationalism. That's a really hard discussion to have with somebody who's sold out in it. 
They are so, it's like, you know, they go to these prophecy conferences. It's like right next to the Star Trek conference, you know, and they have all these charts and graphs and they're just like so sold out on it. And you start talking and you go, you know, I remember the very first time, you know, talk about Wayne Fortner. He uh, came to the very first Westminster Confession class that I taught, like, 12 years ago when we first started going through this. And I remember teaching through that class, and I, I still hadn't really, I was learning as I still am. Every time I go through it, you know, I read more books and I try to get better and better. But I'm going through it, and you get to the end of the confession, right? And what's the end of the confession? The resurrection Judgment Day. And it's just like kind of short. It's, Jesus comes, he judges, and that's it. Resurrection, everybody's resurrected. And the hands just flew up. But what about the two witnesses? And what about the rebuilding of the temple? And what about what, all this stuff? I mean, it's like, how can, it doesn't just end. It's when Jesus comes. That's the beginning of the rain and all this stuff. And I remember thinking, boy, this is going to be, yeah, I had to do a whole different class just on, on that, you know, after I had kind of settled myself eschatologically a little bit. See, look at, why am I picking this up? See how we're, <laughs> see how we're creatures of habit? And there's only one thing to do. There's an object lesson here with the temptation. So you take the temptation and you put a lid on it, and you get it away from yourself. <laughs> okay? If you know what... <laughs> Alan, can you please come and get this thing away from... No, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> if you don't learn anything this week, learn that. I, I mentioned this idea of increments just so that we recognize... Uh, that there should always be love and humility and understanding and gentleness. We're, we're all a work in progress, and sometimes things just aren't as easily understood as we might think they should be. Now, I want to also look, uh, my next one is uh, encouraging accuracy when found. So in your outline, encouraging, I think that's in your outline still, encouraging accuracy when found. I think that's a really important thing, too. And again, you know, when you, you know, and I don't want to, again, I don't want to sound overly paternal, but, you know, when your kids do something right, you're all over it, right? That's it. That's good. Wait, you know, it was nice that you said thank you. It was nice that you did. You know, I think the same thing. When you find that your, your friends are starting to embrace something that's right, really, really encourage that. You know, the seven letters of the seven churches in Revelation, the general structure, and I know there's a, a, some exceptions to this, to those seven churches um, are words of encouragement followed by words of correction. You know, I know that you're good at this, but, yes, but I have this against you kind of thing. And um, so, you know, there was positive, you know, and negative. And I think one of them is just positive and one of them is just negative. I don't remember right how exactly, you know, how that worked, uh, you know, at the time. But the point is that some of the things that were negative were really negative. I mean, it wasn't just... You know, I don't, you know, you guys are using drums in worship and you shouldn't be. It was, you know, it was the, 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 you know, you have the, the, the doctrine of Balaam. Or I know that Jezebel. I mean, it was things that we would just view as just ridiculously bad. Another argument, by the way, uh, against chronological proximity as, a, uh, you know, as some type of factor in, in accuracy is I'll tell you this, you know, our church is no perfect church and I'm sure yours isn't either. But I'd bet you dollars to donuts that our church is in better shape than the church at Corinth. I mean, think about what was going on in Corinth. So, you know, you, don't, you can't go back and go just because it's chronologically close. 
I mean, our, our church, I'll bet you, you know, you talk about the churches of Galatia embracing another gospel. As many flaws as our church has, we're not embracing another gospel. I mean, we're wrestling through it. And so I think we have to recognize that even in those terrible situations where the doctrine was just aberrant doctrine, there's still the words of encouragement for the things that are good. I, uh, I went to a, a, a church service of a pastor, and I, you know, and, I, and you know, I, for some reason, have a ministry with a lot of pastors, and I enjoy that, and I think it's an important thing. And um, if, you know, if, if it goes through them, you know, and the message goes through them, and that's, I'm so content with that. I mean, I wouldn't mind someday just kind of being a consultant. <laughs> Little cell phone on the beach, right? Little umbrella. No, they need to be excommunicated. You know. <laughs> but I went and I heard this pastor uh, give a message, and um, again, he was kind of coming from, you know, where he's moving in that direction. And he gave a sermon on the, uh, on the Sabbath, of all things, and, uh, and he actually taught it as, uh, as if it were a real day that to, was to be observed, you know, which just was shocking in that particular church, you know, because they usually just kind of blow it off as something else, you know. I mean, it was, uh, and I realize there are divergent views in terms of the Sabbath and what's acceptable and not acceptable, but you realize, for the most part, in modern Western evangelicalism, the Sabbath is completely ignored. I mean, it's just, un- I mean, they go so far as to say that since it's not repeated in the New Testament, it's just simply not a law to be observed. That's, by the way, a dispensational hermeneutic is that it needs to be repeated in the New Testament in order to be a binding law. Whereas a covenantal hermeneutic is that unless it's abrogated in the New Testament, we, it's still standing. But they're just like, well, it's not repeated. Of course, I think it is repeated, but be, that, you know, beside that point, for the most part, we live in an evangelical culture, in, you know, our whatever level of Christendom, that has complete disregard for the Sabbath whatsoever. Now, I didn't agree with his conclusions. You know, I sat there and listened, and I didn't agree with everything. I thought, you know. But I'll tell you, the fact that he just got, you know, in my opinion, that much right, I felt like Josiah, Josiah, I felt like weeping. You know, so again, it was a big church, a big giant church, all hearing, you know, something... And I just was so encouraged by the fact that this was a step in the right direction. Was it the sermon that I would have preached? No. Was it the sermon that many of you would have preached? No. But it certainly wasn't the sermon that he would have preached five years ago. I mean, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. And I think that we've got to avoid just being naysayers all the time and pointing out what's wrong and encouraging the accuracy when, when we hear it. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, there's a word I want us to take a look at here, and I think it's a good word. Uh, the word is exhortation. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12:3, and then I'm going to just kind of skip to verse 8 because it's the same subject. For I say, through the grace given to me to, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one uh, a measure of faith. He's talking about spiritual gifts here. Interesting that he talks about not thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. When I read a verse like that, what that tells me is that's probably a problem. Right? Why, would he, why would he address it if it wasn't a problem that when we exercise our spiritual gifts that we are tempted to be you know, kind of uppity? Verse 8, He who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives uh, with liberality, he who leads with diligence, uh, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. But the word here is exhortation, because I think that's a lot of what we're doing 
with our uh, Christian friends is, exhort, uh, is exhorting them. The Greek word is periklesis, and it basically is primarily a calling to one's side or to one's aid. You know, the idea here is that, you know, coming alongside some, somebody. I think that's the image that I think is an important in exhortation. As opposed to, say, a rebuke, right? A rebuke seems to be more forceful. It's like in your face. An exhortation is to the calling of one side or to come along one side. And uh, I think of it, my illustration for this is when you're watching a Western, right, and the stagecoach is out of control. Right? And, you know, and the lady's up there, you know, help me, help me. You know, and she can't get the reins and it's heading for the cliff. And, you know, when the hero gets on his horse, he doesn't head straight for the stagecoach, right? He doesn't, like, head. It's coming. He doesn't just go, okay, head on collision. I'll stop him. That's not the way that works. Has anybody ever seen this scene in a movie? What does he do? Yeah, he comes alongside, right? He grabs the reins. He slows it down. He you know, aims it in the right direction. That's the picture. The picture, I think, in terms of exhorting is you come alongside somebody, you start leading them in the right direction. I think there's a real skill involved when the person who's exhorted later on recognizes that they were exhorted. You know, I've had that happen to me where, where somebody says something to me and I'm like, and I walk away and go, that person just completely said the opposite of what I believed and yet they were right and at the time I never even felt there was a conflict. There was no abrasiveness. There was a sense of this person came along and they straightened me out. And I, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. You have to work on that. You have to understand the incremental. You have to understand the gentleness. You have to recognize that ultimately it's God by His Spirit who's changing the person, not you. You've got to not try to beat the person. You've got to try to bless the person. You need to know the person. You need to engage. You need to know that that, the stagecoach is out of control. And you need to seek to, to remedy the situation. And I'd like to finish uh, this section with what I call a neglected necessity. And so, uh, is that in there somewhere? Neglected necessity? I think a neglected necessity is sound epistemology. Epistemology, uh, I think probably many of you know, it's a theory of knowledge. How, how do we know what we know? I think that's an important issue in our discussions. Oftentimes, the reason for poor theology is a poor theory of knowledge. R.C. Sproul made the comment. I had him for a class one time. He's a great, great teacher, enjoyable. He said that the greatest impediment to good theology is not poor Greek, Hebrew, or quiet times. It's poor logic. It's the inability to think clearly. I think we have to communicate to our friends nicely that contradictions are lies. I mean, it's the very word, contradiction. It's against the way you speak. It's speaking out of both sides of your mouth. A contradiction is a lie. I think our friends need to know the importance of the truth. Um, Roger Wagner got up one time in Presbytery and basically said, you know, if we give up, if he, if we give up epistemology, we're giving up the farm. If you, you give up, if we give up the theory of knowledge, then you can go anywhere you want, right? You've, you've basically given up the source of the information. God has chosen to communicate to us through the written word, right? I mean, it's chapter one of our confession. 
And that word has sentences and paragraphs and syntax and structure and words that mean things. And we have to recognize the value of that. In John 8.44, we read, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him when he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of lies. A contradiction. Now, keep in mind, we oftentimes contradict ourselves unwittingly, unknowingly. So if somebody, contra- somebody asks, con- when my friend said, I'm eclectic because he gave two different answers, I didn't say, well, the problem is you're a liar. You know, so we don't want to immediately become accusatory, but he recognized that what he did was essentially a lie to one person. He did it in ignorance. He didn't do it in willfulness, but he came to recognize it. But I think that's an important thing for us to recognize, that the devil is the father of lies, and contradictions are lies. And God has chosen to reveal to us to himself in sentences and propositions that can be understood. I was at Starbucks one morning, and I, uh, there were these two older gentlemen sitting in the chairs, and... I was waiting for my coffee. One guy said, I know you, you know, and he, he had recognized me from a funeral or a wedding that I had done. And he, was a, he'd got, he went to a Lutheran church, and there were two of them there, and we started talking. And um, it got, got, again, it got on to uh, probably the doctrines of grace. That seems to be, you know, what comes up a lot, you know. And uh, we started talking. And uh, I, I don't want to make it sound like I win every argument. I have a theory, by the way, of debates. I, I have, I, the way I evaluate it, I have never lost a debate. Because my attitude toward debate is win-win. Because if I have lost the debate, that means, number one, I was wrong, and now I can correct myself, so I win. Or, or I just didn't present my position very clearly, so I have to go back and present it more clearly. So either way, I, it, I come out a winner. And if I win, I, then I win on all accounts. And so I think debate is a healthy thing, as long as your ego and your pride doesn't get all bruised and what have you. And so yeah, I think we should be willing to engage. I, I mean, I, I went on the air. I've been on the air and debated subjects, you know, and walked away thinking, all right, you know, I didn't do as well as I would have liked to have done, you know, but if it comes up again, I'll be ready. You know, we just go through our life and we work our way through that. But we're in this discussion, and uh, this one guy, he's ready to, you know, he's, he must have had a triple mocha or something because he was ready. <laughs> He was ready to go, man. And, uh, and quite frankly, you know, I won this debate. You know, he's debating me, and, you know, he knew the Bible pretty well, and I knew the Bible, and we started talking, and I, I won. And he goes, well, the problem is you're thinking the way man thinks. I'm like, what? You were doing that a minute ago until you lost the debate. That's kind of a little fail-safe people have, you know. It's like you have the discussion... And then when it goes to a place they don't like it to go, all of, them, all of a sudden they become Zen Buddhists and they start clapping with one hand. All of a sudden, logic doesn't make any sense. All of a sudden, you're thinking as man thinks. All of a sudden, you're using Aristotelian logic rather than the Spirit moving you in all of these contradictory propositions. But we have to understand, people operate that way. Now, I'm not saying for a minute that there isn't a level of incomprehensibility to God. We know that. But there are certain things that God has determined we ought to know. He's given us words, and He's given us, in His image, the ability to reason these things out, and we argue these things out, and we argue, we win, we lose, we figure it out. 
Isn't that one of the quests of the history of man? Is to know Christ, to know God. He has his word, and we, that's why denominational disputes, none of that bothers me. I was talking to this Roman Catholic guy, and he's like, he goes, you know what, there are more than 2,000 Protestant denominations, you know. And it was his way of saying, see how Protestantism doesn't work? As if all the Roman Catholics agree, right? And I go, because I, I, I go, well, you realize there are, there are gay Roman Catholics, there are charismatic Roman Catholics, there are feministic Roman Catholics, you realize there are the, the ones, the pre-Vatican II Roman Catholics. So I'm going, look at you know, all, all the Roman Catholics, they're not agreeing either. But I go, you know what, it doesn't bother me there are 2,000 denominations because what it's telling me is that there are people who are willing to put their foot down and fight for what they believe and separate themselves from the lies. So it doesn't bother me that, there are, that these arguments take place. I mean, I, I think in a perfect world we would all, you know, be in the OPC. But that's just not the way, it's, <laughs> not the way it is. We're going to take some time, you know, for that to happen. But we have to recognize that... Th- that you can't go to the we can't know this mentality, especially when there are things that God has revealed to us in his word. But a lot of our Christian friends do that. They are really down on the idea of a proposition. The idea that God has revealed to us certain things that we are to know. And in all humility, we recognize there is a depth to God that's incomprehensible. But the fact that I don't know everything about God doesn't mean I don't know anything about God. I don't know everything about baseball. But I know that if you get three strikes, you're out. I know that. And God has determined that we should know certain things about him. We've got a Bible in front of us. It's 66 books. It's not exhaustive knowledge, but it's knowledge. And I think, you know, with all this, and I'm not going to get into the whole postmodern thing, but, you know, at Fuller, postmodernism is huge, right? And the whole thing is just one big skeptical, we can't know anything mentality until you take their test, right? (laughs) I know I didn't get any right, but I didn't know what you were talking about, so shouldn't I get an A? <laughs> well, that doesn't count in the real world, you know. So I think that's something I think we really need to, to recognize. And finally, with that thinking, on the tail end of that thinking, because we're, we're done here, uh, is the need to, to reveal to your friends their, the need for systematics that the Christian faith should make sense. The whole Bible should make sense. It should work together. It should not be contradictory. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.3 said, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That word is hypotoposis. That is a model or a pattern or an outline. You know, I've given you an outline that makes sense. We're struggling with my outline here a little bit, right? The Apostle Paul's outline makes all the sense in the world. Romans 6.17, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. You know, like a friend, my friend who told me he was eclectic. Um, he, he recognized that that was a violation of a form of doctrine that he should have. I, and I, I know I'm running late here, but let me just tell you one last thing. Uh, two years ago when I went to China, big influence. I mean, wonderful, faithful people there, willing. Many of these guys have been in labor camps. Our little conference we had, uh, they had to turn their cell phones off. They ate and slept in the little building we were at for days. Um, 
you know, it was a very intense situation. They'd moved the location six different times for security reasons. When I got off the plane, I didn't even know, uh, you know, where I was going to go. And uh, but they were there, and I went through the Westminster Confession with them and explaining to them why I thought this was important. They're not into that. It was a struggle for them. It was a struggle for them. They wanted to know other things, you know. And we went through the whole thing, uh, you know. It was like four 12-hour days, just ripped through it. And um, they asked me what I thought they needed to do, what, what needed to happen in China. Because there were 30 pastors representing about 250,000 church members. I mean, their churches are gigantic. I went to one of the services. It was an amazing event. And I took my last you know, moments with them and I told them, look, I just shared with you what I think is the soundest historic confession in the history of the church. It's my opinion. Maybe you agree with it and maybe you don't. But in my opinion, you as the pastors uh, who are the prominent pastors here in China, you need to figure out what you think the Bible means and you need to write it down. I basically was encouraging them to have their own Westminster Confession. Now, whether it's right or wrong, I mean, we may agree, they may, most of them were kind of Baptist, and most of them were a little bit charismatic, but you know what? You need to sit in a room, you need to open the Word of God, and you need to figure out, in a very systematic way, what you think this book is actually teaching, because if you don't, your wisdom is going to die with you. It's not going to move on to the next generation. That was my charge to them. And that's what I think our evangelical friends need to learn. They need to learn that the Bible is, is something that needs to be understood. It needs to be understood in a proper sense. It, that, that's why systematics and I think confessions are so valuable. And when they get a hold of that, it's like they have found something precious. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we do thank you that throughout history, Father, you have preserved your word and you have blessed us with the wisdom of those teachers you've raised up. Help us, Father, to continue to impart that message to the culture in which we live and even far off, Father, to those uh, missionaries that we have in, 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 uh, in far off places. Help us, Father, to reach out to our neighbors. Help us to d- deliver to them the true message of the law and gospel of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.